if you had backward looking ideas and uh, were resistant to innovation, that would help a lot to pass the test that would allow you to rise through the power structure. And loyalty and obedience were extremely important. And that uh, backward looking thought and obedience to the president seems to be very much a characteristic of the current administration in Washington. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, we're in the middle of talking about political terms, uh, vocabulary worth knowing about politics and government. We were in the middle of talking about empires and imperialism. We have a whole bunch more to say about that, starting with a counterexample of an empire, China. China, of course, been a very wealthy country. Naturally, it would seem like it would become an empire, but uh, not, it's not always the case that that happens. Well, the uh, first emperor famously built an empire out of the warring states and conquered his nearby ones. He was the Qin emperor, uh, Qin giving the name that we still use for China uh, in the West here. But the interesting thing about the Chinese is they generally didn't uh, attempt to build an empire outside of their borders. You know, there there is a typical satirical comment about expansive dictatorships that uh, all they want is to rule over their own territory and the territory adjacent to their territory. <laughs> but China was kind of limited on the east by the ocean and on the west by deserts and mountains. Uh, they did assert some control over the Silk Road at times, but that was sort of intermittent, very difficult to do. Uh, they were famous for their Great Wall, of course, instead of pushing the borders out, really trying to contract and keep things as uh, controlled as possible. And so there was only one period, really, where China sent out expeditions to try and build a world-class empire. Now, that's something that has been puzzled over by historians for many years, and there are a lot of theories about why the Chinese didn't become the predecessors of people like the Portuguese and the Dutch and the English and so on, uh, building empires by conquering distant lands. And this is particularly remarkable because uh, China very early on was highly sophisticated technologically. Everybody knows about gunpowder and printing, but there were a lot of other things that were invented as well, but not implemented perhaps as widely as they would be in the industrialized age. The Chinese did engage in a limited amount of foreign trade, uh, both by sea and especially through the Silk Route or the Silk Road, as it's sometimes called. In the 15th century, they sent out a number of expeditions that uh, went as far as the islands off the east coast of Africa. And their goal was to call at each of these, uh, show off how powerful and, and mighty they were, boast about the emperor, get the locals to agree to acknowledge the emperor as the ultimate ruler and pay them some money or goods and then sail on to the next and very large expeditions. But they didn't uh, conquer these lands. Uh, they simply tried to incorporate them into a sphere of influence, as you will. And, and mainly, uh, I guess you could see this was a kleptocratic empire building. They were just trying to get 
riches. But um, eventually they retreated. And by 1500, they'd essentially sealed off the country, not only to uh, expeditions that they sent out, but they didn't let large ships, big ocean-going ships be built at all or large ships from elsewhere come into their ports. And there was, of course, a a famous period later where the, the opening China was the goal of the Europeans to, to pry them loose. I was thinking about this the other day and uh, noticing there's quite a few factors uh, that help to explain why the Chinese didn't become an imperial power uh, that compare fairly well with Donald Trump's America. Mm. First of all, the Chinese really thought they were the greatest country in the world. They were the center of the world. They were richer. They every, Everybody around them, they considered barbarians, people that were were not worth learning anything from. For the most part, uh, it's interesting that it was when the Mongols came in and conquered China that you get people like Marco Polo showing up at the court. It's the, the Chinese themselves are not that open to learning about other countries. The Mongols, of course, uh, did build a tremendous empire and were finally driven out of China. But uh, the Chinese really didn't think they had anything to gain from other countries. And there was such a vast territory, so varied. Um, Aside from uh, occasional forays into Southeast Asia, they were not that interested in travel distant abroad. Oh, I didn't mention the other barrier, of course, to keep them from going was the Himalayas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the mountains, but yeah. Yeah. The dominant Confucian school of thought, uh, which eventually became organized into a state religion, uh, encouraged tradition over innovation and discouraged scientific progress. The people who were doing the most uh, innovative thinking tended not to be Confucians. The important thing was to study the distant past, particularly poetry, and to uh, adhere to traditional values. Looking backward was all what it was all about, which could be compared to the fascination that our conservatives have with originalism, Mm -hmm. going back and and trying to recreate an imaginary America that the founding fathers would have recognized. Yeah, science and technology became kind of a a toy, things that you could do spectacular tricks with, but uh, not really seriously something that would be integrated into your your whole economy. And of course, Americans are famous for thinking that they're the best country in the world. America first, right? That's what we keep hearing out of the Trump administration. Very similar to the ancient Chinese thought. Mm -hmm. And government officials were judged by their adherence to these old traditions and by loyalty to the emperor. So if you had backward looking ideas and uh, were resistant to innovation, that would help a lot to pass the test that would allow you to rise through the power structure. And loyalty and obedience were extremely important. And that uh, backward looking Thought and obedience to the president seems to be very much a characteristic of the current administration in Washington. As I mentioned, the Chinese viewed trade as mainly a way of making money by selling their prized products like silk. And uh, they had little interest in what the outside world had to offer besides gold. There was a period, in fact, in ancient Rome, where they tried to ban the purchase and sale of silks imported from China because so much gold was flowing out of Rome over the Silk Road. They didn't really know where it came from. In fact, 
in the West, uh, the distant land where it came from was just known as a synonym for silk. And so this idea of that we should have a, a positive balance of trade was very much central to the Chinese ways of thought. Well, uh, serious economists know that you don't get a really successful, long-lasting, stable economic uh, regime that's built on the idea of just extracting wealth from other places. And that's, of course, exactly the model that, that Trump seems to favor. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, the Chinese built a great wall, a great, great wall. But it didn't keep the Mongols out. Yeah, It was a series of walls, actually, and it was built over and rebuilt and so on. It was more of an idea than a fact. And uh, if you're going to boast about building a wall, you ought to study Chinese history, I think. Now, when people talk about Trump, I do pay attention to that. And Donald Trump seems to be, in my mind, and I think a lot of people's mind, a unique uh, character on the political landscape. But my eyes glaze over when I hear this term Trumpism, Ah. because I think this is just a guy, some rich guy who bought and bullied his way up to the top politically. And Trumpism doesn't really have an idealism behind it, does it? But I'm going to say that your list here is starting to convince me otherwise. You apply these to our current climate with Donald Trump, but these ideas of uh, there are certain areas, certain factions in the in this country that consider us the greatest in the world, and uh, there's not really anything to be gained by bringing in immigrants, for example, or having other ideas brought in. We'll figure out our own health care solutions. Thank you. We don't need to model it after some other successful uh, system out there that is observable in a, in similar countries in the world and, and because we're so great we only need our history to look on look back at and we'll glorify and mythologize our history to tailor what we think it should be and and we'll just go from there i think all of these things are trumpism are, are people off when they use that term well, I understand your reluctance to that because a lot of what he does seems to be purely emotional and based on his own personal reactions to things. But I think he he hasn't systematically thought out any of this, mm-hmm. but these are just instinctive things that come from his role as thinking that he's the greatest. I was reading an analysis the other day that says that uh, failure is one of the most important things that a person can learn from in order to learn your li- not only your limits, but how to overcome them, develop character and so on. And Trump was sort of pampered as a rich young guy and and allowed to do pretty much whatever he wanted and even his most famous failures the bankruptcies as far as he were concerned were huge successes clever maneuvers that left him on top yeah it's that constant uh, feeling like well i'm i'm the king of the world and uh, i deserve it he's just generalized that to an idealized portrait of the american nation yeah well and another reason i tend to want to reject that term is um, I don't consider Trump to be our greatest leader, let's just say, and (laughs) to have any kind of lasting, even if it's got a negative connotation, any lasting uh, political theory or anything like that, I don't want to call it that. I want to call it something else. Besides, we have a good word already, Trumpery. (laughs) Trumpery, okay. 
Well, I think people listening to this conversation are going to wonder why we're not talking about American empire. So I, I wanted to bring that up um, mm-hmm. because we, we are often called the American empire. Again, I'm not breaking any new ground here, but let's delve into that a little bit and talk about aspects of this country that make it an empire and then some things that differentiate it from other empires in history. I think we've got a, some kind of modern variation on empire. It mainly refers to global capital. And this goes back to your discussion on Trump uh, viewing trade as mainly a way to make money, getting the best deal, right? And uh, ma- making it better for us and worse for everybody else. And we also have something of a military empire uh, with our military bases around the world. I looked it up. The Pentagon says we have 650 um, other people say we have more than that. It's safe to say that not all 650 of those military bases are huge compounds uh, that are um, armed to the teeth. Sometimes they're just U.S. military buildings that are in other countries. But it does create a, quite a large global military footprint. In my direct area, I don't know of anything that I would call a military building anywhere around me in Oregon <laughs> that that belongs to another country. A, a traditional empire would carry the influence further, and it would conquer more territory and turn those peoples into citizens. So in the Roman Empire, for example, as that spread around, people became Roman citizens that were nowhere near Rome. <laughs> they would reap some benefits from that, get some infrastructure. Um, have we talked about the, we talked about the Monty Python scene, haven't we? Were in the life of Brian, the famous scene where faction that's trying to organize against the Romans, and they say, "Well, you know, what have the Romans ever given to us?" And and one of them says, "Well, uh, uh, clean water, aqueducts." And they said, "Well, yes, but other than that, and they go go down the list of all the things that the Romans have, have built for them and provided for them." And said, "But other than this, 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 and this, what have the Romans ever given us?" And they look around and find that they can say nothing. Well, let's go get them, you know. So. Uh, there is an aspect of empires and empire building where there's there's that side of it. And then, of course, the sphere of influence inside of it where young members of your society will be enlisted into some empire's uh, military. Uh, we don't do that so much. Although there's been a lot of news recently about the fact that uh, one way to get to be an American citizen has been to uh, allow f- uh, foreign immigrants to join the military and serve Right. I'm going to call that a modern variation on that. Um, It's not so much that you go out and conquer an area and then you enlist young citizens into the military, but it is a way to get citizenship in the United States to uh, to agree to that. Which Trump seems bent on destroying. He's just recently trying to put a stop to that. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that he'll win that fight. And that's an aspect of American empire that I think... We'll call that a twist on an old idea of what an empire is. First, from the Native American point of view, the whole United States is an empire that was built by invaders uh, taking away their lands and subjecting them. Sure. That was uh, the conquering of the territories, especially moving west. But even from the day uh, pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock, (laughs) did that even happen? Is that true? (laughs) Or is that... Is that myth? I'm not sure. But the, but even from the day that uh, Europeans arrived 
on the continent. Uh, you always think of, uh, well, it's westward expansion. That was the empire building where manifest destiny and w- wiping out the native populations that were there. But uh, the native populations were certainly in the east also uh, upon arrival. Is a famous train called the Empire Builder. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> I used to ride on it. Where where does that run? Uh, I'd have to look it up. I think it's between San Francisco and Chicago. But but if we if we take Manifest Destiny away, generally this hasn't been the case where the U.S. has taken over territories. We do have some territories. Port, Puerto Rico was just recently uh, getting wiped out by hurricanes. Virgin, yes, Virgin Island. Islands. Yeah. 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 And various territories. Uh, Hawaii was a territory for years before it became a state. Um, and the Philippines were a territory for a while and before we granted them independence. But we still have a large military force there. And there's uh, a lot of back and forth in Philippine politics, pro and con, the presence of the U.S. there. But, you know, you think you might think, well, uh, Iraq would be a case where that would be an expansion of empire. The initial invasion in Iraq was uh, 1990, is that right, for George Bush Sr. going in. It was decided at some point that they were not going to completely subjugate Iraq and turn it into some kind of client state. And uh, that led to Saddam Hussein retaining power until the second go-around, the big invasion in 2003. Um, And you might think that you might call that a bit of empire building. Well, especially when Bush's advisors were telling him we, we need to secure the oil wells, mm-hmm. uh, the oil fields, and that's important to the West. And they had this uh, this idea that somehow the war would be paid for by the Iraqis. <laughs> would you take their oil? And and of course the it the war turned out to be vastly more expensive than any increased income could have possibly come and then none of that worked out and they allowed the country to be ruined instead by guarding the oil fields and not the national museums and the electrical grid and other things that were important it was just about the worst example of would-be imperialism ever yeah and you know i think part of the problem here is that the goal the military goal doesn't seem to be to arrive at a peace treaty where there are uh, official deals made between the two involved states. And included in that deal could be that, uh, yes, we agree to become part of your empire, or we agree to these terms or those terms. It's just more and more uh, br- attempt to brutally take over the elements and the, the economy of, of someplace else. But we did have, for a while, we had Paul Bremer over there as the official leader of Iraq, just installed, uh, fait accompli. <laughs> yeah. Of course, uh, he, he, I don't think he had much real authority over there no and and in his and in the other case of uh, macarthur being installed as the leader in japan both of them had as their um job transitioning to a democracy the idea was that the u.s would show them how to do it right so very much like the ancient greek tyrants Mm. they were supposed to set up didn't work very it worked fairly well in japan did not work in iraq at Mm -hmm. all well, I, do you do you agree with me that the the U.S. empire as it exists now is historically something a little bit uh, different, distinct 
from empires as we traditionally understand them? Yes, although I would like to talk about neocolonialism when we get a little later, because that still remains to be a very important right. uh, factor. But I want to talk a little bit about empires a little more before we get to that. In English, we usually use imperial to uh, refer to aspects of the British government and not always related to its empire. So, you know, imperial majesty and so on. The British Empire is pretty fragmentary now. It has very few possessions as such. But the adjective imperial can be used of anyone or anything having a commanding or a majestic quality. You have an imperial bearing. Imperious, however, is different. It emphasizes the overbearing, domineering qualities of a person. So he has an imperious manner. just means somebody will acts like he's got all kinds of power. It doesn't necessarily mean he does. And um, so colonialism. Colonialism obviously gets related to empires. Empires are sometimes built of colonies. Ancient cultures like uh, Rome established colonies and conquered territories, uh, famously in Britain, I guess, is one we know about a lot. Uh, but the term colonialism uh, refers to practices followed by European states between the 16th and 20th centuries with a heavy emphasis on the 19th and early 20th. Mostly uh, Northern Hemisphere European nations conquering and colonizing Southern Hemisphere nations. The word colonialism uh, dates only from the second half of the 19th century. Mm. And it's often used figuratively of domination of weaker peoples by a larger power. So it doesn't have to literally mean you go and set up a local government and take over the, the nation entirely. Mm -hmm. So what is the difference here between colonialism and empire? It, they seem to spill over into one another. They do. Usually we associate colonies with uh, people being sent out from the conquering country to settle there. Sometimes they become very large and overwhelm the rest of the inhabitants. This happened with the United States, but often it's just a small group that exercises control. And the empire is made up of colonies. Colonialism would be the process by which you acquire the colonies and then rule over them an empire is the thing that you mm. exercise that power over mm -hmm. so colonialism is part of empire building yeah although you know the french i think would claim that their colonies are not part of an empire mm. going back to napoleon of course uh, he built an empire I, I forgot one use of the word empire of course is the empire dress it's very light uh, a flowing filmy garment uh, gathered high under the bust, which was during the period when Napoleon was building his empire, it became popular, still used in couture. Mm, I see. Okay. And it, it's also worth saying that although the ancient Chinese never built a big international empire, they certainly are engaging in neocolonialism right now, something the United States has been accused of many times in many other European nations. Neocolonialism is the domination of one nation by another without actual invasion or ownership, where you use cultural, economic, or political influences to influence the subject people. A classic traditional example is the domination of Honduras and other Latin American nations through the United Fruit Corporation in the U.S. And then the term Banana Republic comes from that as a, a term to denigrate Central American countries, which were dominated by... United Fruit, 
oil companies and, and various others uh, have often engaged in what is called neocolonialism in this way, so often with the cooperation of their national governments, often interfering in the politics of the local governments, setting up uh, heads of state who are f- favorable to them, uh, helping to make sure that the laws uh, favored them, and so on. Every time I go buy a Banana Republic store, it's just a little jolt. Why would a modern clothing company want to call itself Banana Republic? Mm. They originally specialized in travel clothing, and I think they just thought Banana Republic was kind of a cute name for Mm -hmm. those places off in the jungle where you might imagine yourself going exploring without really digging into what it means to call that kind of area Banana Republic. Right. Now their clothing has gotten much more upscale. The term uh, neocolonialism is uh, one of those terms that's used critically. People don't say, I am a neocolonialist. So it's a term usually used by leftists to criticize American and European domination of third world nations. The term seems to have been invented by Kwame Nkrumah, the president of Ghana in 1963, an anti-colonial leader. He wrote a sort of sequel to Lenin's uh, work on colonialism uh, in 1965 called Neo-Colonialism, The Last Stage of Imperialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, that echoes uh, the subtitle of Lenin's work, The Last Stage of Capitalism. Mm-hmm. So it was recognizable as being a sequel. Neo-colonialism is what uh, the U.S. often gets accused of by countries, especially in Latin America, but also in in other regions of the world, uh, when we interfere excessively in their economies and influence their politics. I got to say that the Chinese have been picking up on this, and especially in parts of uh, Southeast Asia, uh, Central Asia, and Africa, and some places in Latin America have been doing huge investments in which they bring in large sums of money and a lot of Chinese labor, building an economic empire to mainly to secure resources like oil and minerals and so on, um, but also having sometimes very large influences over them. They, they've turned quite a few countries into debtor nations by building huge projects, giving them enormous loans, which flatter the leaders of those countries into thinking that they're building up a great nation, and then they have to pay back the Chinese, and they have to allow a lot of Chinese to live there and be the administrators of enterprises and so on. So uh, the U.S. may have done its share, but right now I think the biggest empire building of this neocolonial sort is is Chinese. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that may be true uh, as of now, but of course, this you talk about the sphere of influence and that the U.S. continues to hold over a lot of South and Central America. Got a, got some cognates there. Uh, let's do one more term uh, here, uh, sticking with colonialism, post-colonialism. Post-colonialism, yeah. Toward the end of my career, I got very interested in the literature and life of India and visited India. Um, wrote uh, a book about uh, Indian literature written by Indians or Indian-descended people, but writing in English like Salman Rushdie and Aaron Hadi Roy, people like that. And I uh, was stunned to discover that this whole field of study was now being called post-colonialism. Mm-hmm. And it's not a word that's much used in real world political speech. You don't find politicians or the people in the UN talking about post-colonialism, but it's in academic 
theory, especially in history and literature, uh, to label the experiences, writings, and other artistic creations of formerly colonized peoples. And the term has become extremely widely applied even to writing on India, Jamaica, and Nigeria, which have nothing to do with their former colonial status or that period's influence on the present. Uh, it's one of the problems I have with post-colonialism. It really does not label in a descriptive way what it is used to label. Most writing really doesn't have that much to do with the colonial experience of post-colonialism. Um, there are a few examples, most famous one being Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe, which mm -hmm. shows uh, an African nation area falling apart and, and being destroyed as the British move in and take over. And But that's actually pre-colonialism. It's about what happens just before a nation becomes colonized. Yeah. And I've written a whole essay on this, post-colonial literature problems with the term. I've tried several places to get it published, and I've had uh, some interest in it, but they always back down at the last minute. It's just not, it's just not politically correct in the liberal circles to criticize the term post-colonialism. But you'll find it on my website, and we'll make a link to it if you have any interest in that. I've had several uh, South Asian scholars tell me they really appreciated it and that it reflected their own views on things. I have another essay on the irrelevance of postcolonialism to South Asian literature, particularly a problem there because the pushback against colonialism in contemporary Indian politics has very little to do with the British experience and everything to do with the Muslim experience, the Mughal invasion conquest of India, and it happens to be very right-wing, very racist, very repressive, and not, not at all what liberals would generally advocate. It's applied mostly now, the post-colonial world would be the, what's usually still called the third world, although that's a Cold War term. It doesn't make much sense anymore. Uh, we talk about rutted third world roads, third world conditions, and so on. Uh, it's, uh, it has to do with poverty. Better, I think, just to drop the term altogether. The, the first world was the capitalist world, the dem democratic world. Uh, the second world was the communist world, and the third world was those that uh, weren't committed to either side. Well, the second world sort of collapsed and China has become a, a huge uh, pseudo-communist, highly capitalized country without the democratic values. And it's always been a kind of a patronizing term. It lumps a huge variety of countries together in an insulting way that I, I don't think is really useful. Right. For first world problems is a term that's got yeah. currency. It's a shortcut for saying... Um, I know I'm privileged, but I still have problems. You know, these things like, yeah. um, oh, I can't, I can't. I'm having trouble connecting to Wi-Fi, <laughs> or uh, it's horrible. I, I'm going to this some exotic destination. I have to take this horrible long airplane trip <laughs> to to get to where I'm going. These are referred to as first world problems, often um, self-consciously. Yeah, I think put in journalists got used to using it, and it's just kind of a hangover Yeah, yeah. from the Cold War. Well, I want to talk about more of these terms uh, next time. We've got a whole bunch left to do, and uh, boy, it gets interesting. I mean, it, it just continues to be interesting, I should say, uh, as we move along here. But uh, we've got to save some for next time. Okay, 
We'll talk later. Bye. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening.